Hi, I'm David Freudberg from Humankind. Occasionally on this podcast, we present classic programs from our archive, including the one you'll hear now from our series, Kindred Spirits. For that program, we sought out people of many backgrounds, traditions, and life experiences to understand the personal beliefs that give them purpose and animate their activities. If you like what you hear on this podcast, we're asking for your help to keep it going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh. May the peace and blessings and mercy of Allah be God. with you. Allahu Akbar. Our Father, who art in heaven, in te domine speravi, non confunda in aeternum. In you, O Lord, I trust. May I never Shema be Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Walk cheerfully over the earth, answering that of God in every one. You're listening to Kindred Spirits. Welcome to Kindred Spirits. I'm David Freudberg. Our guest today is Albert T. Murphy. He's a professor at Boston University who specializes in work with impaired children. He's also the author of Special Children, Special Parents, a book that has comforted many thousands of parents who face the uh, very real challenge and struggle of giving love to children who have special needs. I was intrigued by a comment you made that in a way we all have some impairments and to look at a child who uh, seems to uh, carry this special burden is really to be looking at a part of ourselves. How have you experienced that? Well, if you think of living in its most ideal sense as a process of inventing yourself of creating yourself. Uh, to me, the best opportunity for creating oneself is in a helping relationship with another person. And the ideal, the absolutely ideal relationship is a mutually developmental one. So that in working with an impaired child, for example, while the child hopefully was growing, I'd be growing as a function of that relationship. Now, as I look at the child, I can't deny that I'm looking at myself. At the very same moment, I'm working with, touching, looking at, listening to the child. I can't avoid that because, well, we see things not as they are, but as we are, basically. That's an old observation, but I think true. Uh, also, I probably see in the child a possibility. This is one of the reasons I enjoy working with very young children, although I work with adults too. Because in a sense, sometimes to a larger de degree, they represent what the future may be. And so to look at, to be with a child is to see the future in the making. And to have the opportunity to participate in that is a fantastic thing. At the same time, I, I I've learned that I need to recognize that I have more in common with a child 
no matter what the handicapping condition is, no matter what the severity of the impairment is, that I have more in common with that child than I have indifference with that child. Have you encountered uh, grossly handicapped children and still been able to make that connection that Mm -hmm. there's more in common than different? Well, you know, you, what is true is whatever is true for you, regardless of what someone else says is true, or what the books say is true. Uh, just as, uh, let us say, attitudes are more important than facts, which I believe, I know that I believe far more than scientific facts, uh, that which stirs me emotionally. That I believe. And I have to think about that in terms of uh, a severely emotionally disturbed individual, for example. Their reality is what they're experiencing, regardless of what I think of it or call it or say that it is. Even in a very severely impaired child, a nonverbal, nonambulatory, bedridden child or adult, you have to make an assumption about the individual and about yourself in that relationship, whether it's true or false, or whether others agree with it or not. The assumption I make is the one that um, we find in Amal and the Night Visitors. Every child has a gift, and you go searching for it. You go searching for uh, what lies within and is waiting to be revealed. In a sense, that's what education, counseling, rehabilitation is all about, to help bring the person out to a point of maximal functioning in terms of whatever is natural functioning. So I make that assumption and I go for it, so to speak. <laughs> now some might say that's silly. Could I ask you for a, a specific uh, instance? Well, if you go, go into a hospital ward or a ward with uh, severely, with individuals judged to be severely mentally retarded, also severely physically impaired. And these are people who don't get up and go around. In fact, they have difficulty getting up on their elbows in the bed. Their world is a world of lying in bed, staring at a ceiling, which may have paint chipping off, falling onto the bed sheets. They get up when someone comes in and lifts them from the back to feed them, to bathe them, to dress them, and to undress them, and so forth. They're nonverbal. They apparently are not able to give a, uh, an appropriate social response, perhaps because they're cerebral palsy or something of that sort, which may throw us off the track of what they really think and feel and want to be able to do. And at a moment like that, some people, naturally enough, because we've been conditioned, we've been taught to feel this way to a great extent, would perhaps say there's not much there. And some would say, I'd prefer not to work with such individuals. And you respect that, of course. Uh, on the other hand, there are many, many others who make a different assumption. And the assumption is that uh, something within that individual wants to be released from its imprisoned state. And uh, I'd like to be a part of the process that helps to release whatever potential is lying there waiting. Waiting for what? Perhaps a relationship that has not been experienced before, that perhaps I might contribute to. So it's that looking 
it's the inner eye that you've got to use, not the objective eye, although you need both working with handicapped individuals. You need to keep a, a perspective which incorporates science, uh, scientific knowledge, uh, the knowledge of the field, but you've got to, uh, let's say, listen with the heart. This relationship with special children can be particularly trying for the parents of such children who must face all the inevitable questions of why has uh, this child come into the world in this uh, impaired condition and how can I possibly find within myself the love and endurance to cope and comfort and uh, support that child and bring out its uh, gifts and potentialities to the extent possible. Where do such parents derive such uh, love and uh, endurance from? We have to remember that no parent expects the birth of a handicapped child, typically. Nor do we have training in the society for parents to be in terms of how to become a parent of a handicapped child. We don't have that. So typically it is a shock. And that shock can be met with in a variety of ways. Dr. Kubler-Ross's outlines for various stages of response to death and dying, well known in this society now. These stages are not at all unlike the stages that parents of impaired children go through, regardless of the age at which the, they first discover that the child is impaired. After all, a child may be impaired at birth, but a child may become impaired at the age of five, or 14, or 21. And after all, 75-year-old people still have 55-year-old children who become impaired, something we don't hear and talk about as much in this society, but which is as cru crucial a problem. Now, you have different reactions to the realization that their child is impaired at birth shortly after, let us say. Shock, denying, an inability to accept what has happened. Uh, really a numbness, uh, which can be helpful for a while because it keeps out the full realities of what may be possible and uh, perhaps keeps away for a time the full fears of what might be possible in the most negative sense. But they get angry too. And it may be that the, 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 the love that they wish to feel and they bring by nature to the event in which has been insulted perhaps, in their thinking, uh, cannot uh, yet be released until they move through anger. If we find that parents do not express at least some frustration and anger at some point, uh, that tends to manifest itself uh, repeatedly in future, maybe for many, many years, as, uh, as we would say psychologically, not having worked through. So you need the some process. kind of release from the frustration. You need the release. You need the catharsis. Hopefully, if you're lucky, you have a support system available, which may be one other person. That may be enough, like a husband or a wife or a brother or a sister or another child and so forth or a mother or a father. Or, if you're really lucky, a larger group of friends, relatives, and associates. Is there a way of 
accomplishing that release without throwing a tantrum? Yes. And uh, even I transformation? So. I think uh, one of the things about a shocking experience is that it may lead you to see even yourself in a different way. Uh, it throws you into a different perspective of looking at things, including yourself and others and the world. Uh, the basic love which is there, ready, in waiting, in all of us. In some it's more difficult to, to see because they've been hurt in other ways themselves and that's uh, become locked up or a part of their, their, their own shadows, if you will, shadow parts of selves. But still waiting there, I think, to be released. Think about uh, love, a feeling of love that most parents will bring to the child is that uh, love gives you a special way of seeing the world. Uh, you see things, you see possibilities because of the love that others can't see. Uh, and that's a source of strength. You see the possibilities and then hopefully you go for that. Uh, love does, as, as Jung said, it puts you in a mood to risk everything. And uh, that may even be uh, uh, a matter of uh, making yourself look ridiculous for a time. Now some parents of a badly disfigured child naturally may have some difficulty in public appearances with the little, the little one. That's a problem that needs to be worked through for many. Most do work it through. Uh, there are a few extreme examples even of flaunting the deviance in public uh, as a kind of uh, symptom of an imbalance temporarily before the center is achieved and you accept the reality. Uh, you s seeing the possibilities in the child move into a larger orbit of existence. You don't withdraw, isolate yourself, the child, or yourselves together. You, you see the possibilities. Hopefully you're in conjunction, working in conjunction with professional people who are dedicated, in good relationship with you. Uh, you feel a sense of trust with them. Um, you are able to, to share some feelings and get some information from them. It's not a question simply of feeling good about the matter, although that's basic, but it's a, it's a matter of being as knowledgeable as possible about what one does in various life situations, but informing that with compassion uh, or with love, let's say, again, getting back to that full circle. Uh, love is the bottom line always. Uh, with that, uh, one feels that one can conquer almost anything. But it is challenged because there are times when you, you realize that feelings of frustration and anger are drowning out your feelings of love, at least for a while. That's not unusual. It's to be expected from time to time. How, at such a moment, can a parent develop a sense of reassurance that uh, the universe is not cruel, uh, that uh, there is a, a loving spirit of God that uh, will make everything uh, all right. Mm -hmm. 
The trouble begins oftentimes when parents isolate themselves and the child, or when parents become martyrs to the cause of raising an impaired child and forget friends, relatives, other aspects of their lives, and they lose the, the large perspective. Harmony is critical, though, in the concept. Things hang together. They're not in pieces. Uh, we're not looking at just uh, uh, an aspect of a process or an object or a person, but uh, of their totality. And we're not looking at that person just in terms of themselves, but in their context. And not just in a tightly confined context of a room or a house that one never leaves, or one's neighborhood, but in terms of a larger universe of reality, feelings, etc. It's very important to keep a very broad perspective and not uh, to, to become uh, entrapped in terms of one thing. I think uh, it was uh, one of the saints said that you should not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. Now, there are different ways of losing things. For example, for parents of children called handicapped, in a sense they've already lost, and sometimes they'll tell you this, what have they lost? They've lost the child they expected. Now, in a sense, that happens to every parent to some degree because uh, we know uh, that parents have all sorts of wonderful expectations of what people they love can become, or really even sometimes ought to be, which is a bit heavier. So the trap of, of having great expectations uh, can, uh, can lead to unhappiness. I think it's... Uh, I think you've got to have your eyes on the stars, but have your feet on the ground, in a sense. You know, you, it, it's got to be both. It's always both, isn't it? Uh, it's always, uh, well, it's what, again, it's, it's what life is. It's, it's good, it's bad, it's marvelous, it's frustrating, it's joyful, it's hurting, it's painful, it's glorious. But always looking at the horizon and seeing the possibilities, but with handicapped children especially, having hope, if we will, having a future orientation as to what things can become, but having that based in reality, a reasonable reality, and not having it uh, be, as I refer to it, as a magical hope. We're talking with Al Murphy. He has been working for 35 years with impaired children. He specializes in this as a professor at Boston University, and he's author of Special Children, Special Parents. exactly where you are, wherever that may be. Uh, there is sometimes a search for it, the answer, elsewhere, geographically, psychologically, and of course one can come to find, hopefully, that it lies within ourselves first. We have to start there. As Buber said, here where one stands, that's where you begin. That's the only place one can begin. And how do you begin? Heart searching, soul searching, 
there is a hell of a lot of introspection that goes on uh, among parents who uh, have children who are judged to be impaired. You have told me you have two children with uh, certain impairments. In your personal search, uh, how have you deepened your faith through the introspection required to meet that need? Well, it's one thing to be a professional working with children and working with families with children having disabilities. It's another thing to be the parent of children with impairments. Uh, two of my three sons have had uh, severe learning disabilities. They are now, I would say, many years beyond being disabled. They've completed college, etc., and they're working, and they're happy individuals, and uh, I am then again blessed, and we are happy about this, to put it mildly. But for many years, uh, we experienced night by night and day by day what parents, I think, uh, with similar uh, situations have experienced. And obviously that, that, that can contribute to your perspective, it can be a help. Now it's no guarantee that you're going to be more helpful in your work because you've, uh, you've been a, a parent of a child who's been impaired. But aside from your professional work, uh, how were you able to, uh, to transform the hurt and the frustration uh, associated with, with watching two children with learning disabilities uh, into a situation where you could uh, be at peace and uh, feel that uh, the universe was all right? Mm -hmm. This is, the, this is the, uh, the question that all parents of handicapped children have. How do I uh, transform uh, negative energy or condition into positive energy or condition? And uh, certainly I've experienced, my wife and I have experienced it too. And uh, I must say, working professionally, part of what I would hope to be able to do is to find out the unique process that is appropriate for a given individual, a given mother or father, to, to accomplish just this kind of experience that you're talking about, to uh, be in connection with a situation, but to be able to rise above it and to see it in a perspective and to move on with a feeling of some equanimity uh, and, and some faith in the possibilities of what uh, can become. For myself, I'm a great keeper of journals. Uh, I have probably ten different types of journals that I've kept for many, many, many years. I believe your book, uh, Special Children, Special Parents, reflects some of the notes you've made in your journal. It, yes, it really does. Uh, uh, and again, this is a, then an autobiographical uh, statement. So for uh, some parents writing uh, journals and then perhaps discussing them but not necessarily so because uh, sometimes it's sufficient to simply have an intercommunication, a dialogue with oneself if you will in terms of going along as a way of assisting you or working through what's happening day by day as a way of uh, measuring out, weeding out, sorting out a way of getting outside of yourself uh, if only onto paper but for other parents, this is inappropriate. Uh, it simply is not their style. Was there ever a time when the difficulty became nearly unbearable and you just sort of 
right. I've been down on one knee several times. Cried out? Wildly. Cried out and cried. Oh, both. Uh, certainly I have felt the anguish that goes with terrible frustration in terms of what one of in terms of what one, one of my children or the other might have experienced, in terms of a, an academic a, a failure or misunderstanding in relationship, uh, in terms of their inability to cope on the one hand and their remarkable ability in some other sphere, the inconsistency in the behavior. Uh, but no, I've been down on one knee many a time, but uh, being too much the clinician, I suppose, I've uh, tried to learn, even while I'm down on my knee, I find myself practically talking with myself in terms of, oh my God, I can't uh, go on this way. And second, um, this is helping me to learn how a little bit more about how other people feel, and I've got to bring that to my work. Uh, you have a statement here, what it means to work with handicapped children. Would you read it? Yes. To say what it means to work with handicapped children is to express a view toward all children, all people, and to express a personal philosophy, at least in capsule form. I believe that such work enhances the chances of discovering one's noblest nature of continuing to evolute as a fully functioning person. Indeed, one may in the clinical setting find one's religion. To work with handicapped children is to have said that where human beings are concerned, the smallest number is two. I cannot exist fully except in relationship with another. Such work is an experience in the acceptance of great responsibility and much frustration and doubt, but also of joy. It is to learn that the deepest wellsprings of strength and wisdom usually lie beyond strictly professional sources. To develop a philosophy of work requires nothing less than the continuing development of a philosophy of existence in its widest sense. It is to think with Gibran. You have been told that you are as weak as your weakest link. This is but half the truth. You are also as strong as your strongest link. To measure you by your smallest deed is to reckon the power of the ocean by the frailty of its foam. It is an action the Buber Marcel I thou, being present with another and with an open heart, to believe for each thou too art divine. It is to believe that each moment and act holds the possibility of being magnificent. It is to have great expectations, but a readiness for small gains. It is to believe that Though goodness and capacity are not always readily observable, they are present in a deeper sense, always possible of growth or restoration if we can but nurture the soil. A broken body need not contain a broken mind, and words with broken wings may yet fly. To see a child grow is to see the future in the making. It is awesome and gratifying to be able to partake of another's process of becoming something more than he or she is. It is somewhat selfish, too, for it nurtures one's own evolution. We must recognize how we seek for the secrets of life. May we not seek to make others in our own image, but perhaps we cannot deny that we have in mind an image of what they might become.
and through such ways of what we may become. We've been talking with Al Murphy, professor at Boston University, specializing in the needs of uh, impaired children. Uh, he's worked in this field for 35 years and is author of Special Children, Special Parents, which I commend to everyone. For Kindred Spirits from Boston, I'm David Freudberg. You've been listening to Kindred Spirits with host David Freudberg a production of Sound Documentaries. If you have comments or questions about Kindred Spirits, or if you'd like a free catalog listing cassette tapes of these programs, please write us at Kindred Spirits, P.O. Box 777, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 02139. That's Kindred Spirits, P.O. Box 777, Cambridge, Mass, 02139. Thanks very much for listening, and may the spirit of unity bring you peace. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.